Welcome to another edition of the Injury Prevention Academy brought to you by Dorn Companies. For over 20 years, Dorn has been the nation's leading wellness-based pain management and injury prevention company. Through our customized ergonomic education, training, and tech solutions, Dorn has helped nearly 120,000 employees over that time. With an annual ROI of nearly 600%, we have saved employers over $100 million in workers' comp and healthcare costs. I'll be your host, Cheryl Roy, and we will be diving into the various facets of all things safety in the working environment. Welcome, Charles. How are you today? I'm well, Cheryl. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm going to jump right into this. Can you start by sharing your journey in the field of EHS from working with your dad at the age of 13 to your role as the VP at Bolthouse Farms? Absolutely. I'll try to do the redacted version. When I was in high school, my dad was a generalist uh, in a series of hospitals and nursing homes, uh, which really means he took care of asepsis, bacteria control, oversaw the laundry activity, uh, took care of all the emergency response protocols, hazardous chemicals, etc. So hanging around him, I kind of developed uh, an affinity for uh, all things safety, so to speak. And sure. um, he started me out actually with a 13-inch lawnmower mowing the grass of about this three-and-a-half to four-acre property. So I would have an appreciation for work and want to come and do something on the inside. Wow. How long did that take you to mow? <laughs> Sometimes it would take me all week. <laughs> and it was by <laughs> it was by design. And, and In fact, it felt like when I finished mowing, uh, it'd be time to start over again. But, oh, uh, I bet. Uh, he, had a, he had a great strategy in mind because... Uh, Mowing grass with a small lawnmower, that much grass in the Texas heat would be enough to uh, convince you you might want to do something else. So that's character did that. building. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> did that for a while. Uh, got graduated from high school, uh, went to college and worked with my dad part time while I was in college. He continued to remind me of the value of a degree and a professional career. Uh, finished up there, uh, did some odds and ends, worked as uh, security for some retail stores, different things when I graduated, but really started my professional career uh, when I started to work for Oscar Meyer. And uh, again, so when I started as a safety coordinator, kind of got into it, uh, excelled there, left Oscar Meyer, uh, went to uh, the uh, Procter & Gamble company, uh, really uh, Folgers Coffee, which is a division of Procter & Gamble. Uh, right. Worked there for a while, uh, have the unique distinction of being the first environmental health and safety technician of Procter & Gamble. I actually helped uh, write the job description, and and my uh, boss at the time, the VP of HR, uh, commissioned me to help with it, actually accepted with few edits uh, the job description that I created for the position. Uh, shows how much I didn't know. <laughs> it was yeah, by yeah. luck. So uh, did that, um, worked there for a while, Spent some time with the H.J. Hines company, uh, came, uh, left H.J. Hines, started with ConAgra Corporation, uh, did some time at ConAgra. That was farming, agriculture, operations, huge company, really enjoyed my time there, learned a lot. Uh, left there and went to the Gannett Company, that's uh, newspapers, and it was everything from uh, newspaper reporting uh, overseas to keeping people safe. Uh, as they're filming out on the highways, wrecks, fires, et cetera, 
to the safety associated with 100 ton presses uh, making news printing newspapers every day. Cool thing about that particular business is they produce a new product every day. And I found that very exciting because it was always dynamic, always something happening. Maintenance was always at a height. Innovation was always at a height. So I really enjoyed ever changing. that. Yeah, yeah, ever changing. Really enjoyed my time there. Uh, uh, left there and was recruited to the Ahold Corporation where I became the Senior Director of Risk Management. Uh, Ahold is a uh, Netherlands-based company with U.S. operations. And so learned a lot about uh, risk management, risk financing, uh, et cetera, risk transfer when I was with the Ahold Corporation, which has helped me uh, since then. And uh, moved on from uh, Ahold and uh, my career just kind of advanced from there. I started consulting uh, on a full-time basis when I left Ahold because that was the plan. Uh, my sure, son sure. and I had developed a plan and we were going to work together. He was going to school for to get his degree in business and economics, and I had the safety expertise. So we were going to open a risk management consulting company. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away in uh, oh. May of 2007. He got hurt in a motorcycle accident in January 2007 and uh, passed away in May of 2007. The following year, he would have graduated. So and that's sorry. when we were going to start. Thank you. That's when we were going to start the consulting company. And so kind of felt obliged to start the consulting company anyway. So I went out on my own and was uh, favored. I reached out to some of the presidents and EVPs, et cetera, that I had done work for, and they were gracious and kind to give me opportunities. And then uh, I got a call to come and look at a facility uh, in, in Bakersfield, California, actually, with the uh, Bolt House Farms Company. Uh, one of my friends was a general manager, said, hey, and could use some help, came out, did some consulting for them for a couple of years. They decided to get rid of the consultants, and then I started working for them full time. Uh, a couple of years, a few years later, uh, the Camel Soup Company came in and bought the uh, bought the Bolt House Farms uh, operation, ran it for a few years, and that didn't work out too well. And a group of investors, including our previous CEO, came, purchased the business back, and then called me back, said, hey, we're putting the band back together. We'd like you to come and run our EH and Ask and Risk Management Operations. And... Uh, since October of 2021, that's what I've been doing. So uh, I'm I'm old. I've done a lot of stuff, but I wanted to take the redacted version uh, and and uh, share share the short version with you. So that's that's kind of my run up to where I'm at now. That's a lot. <laughs> you had a very <laughs> impressive career. Um, Thank you. It really does sound like family has been a, a wonderful influence on you, um, from your father to you, to you, to your son. Again, Absolutely. my condolences. I'm, I'm very sorry. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, with this immense experience that you have, what would you say that over all these years, what are the top three skills that make a great EHS professional in today's changing landscape? Yeah, great question. I, I think, Cheryl, it starts with broad-based subject matter expertise. I think that's required, uh, including proficiency and regulatory compliance. There is a misnomer that EH&S management or risk management is all compliance. It's really not. It's business right. management because there are several aspects of EH&S and risk management. And so you got to be technically competent in those disciplines. I think that's number one. 
number two, I think you have to be process oriented. I For think sure. process management is key because uh, you need a management system or a structured approach that fosters management by objectives in order to uh, improve any business process, whether it's EHS or quality or whatever it happens to be. And so I'm a proponent of uh, having a management system or a process management system and using processes to manage and control the environment. EHS management is a process like like quality, like operations. Sure. Uh, and so it has to be managed like a process versus a program. I tell uh, people sometime when I'm talking, the difference between a process and a program is within a process, there's connectivity. This leads to that, this supports that, this enables that. In a program, you could find yourself doing one-offs. For example, you could, you could implement a bloodborne pathogen program and uh, that would take care of bloodborne pathogens, but it would not address uh, respiratory issues, for example. So sure. if you use a management process, you're going to have a more holistic view of what the objective is, and then that's going to ensure that you have a more uh, rounded, all-inclusive, comprehensive approach to management. Now, that was a long, drawn-out uh, answer, but that's uh, you know that, that those are the two top ones. And then I think the third one has to be collaboration and communication. Uh, to accompany anything, to accomplish anything in any aspect of business, you got to be a good communicator, and you have to be collaborative. But I think, I think the EHS practitioner has to be a skillful collaborator and a skillful communicator because, in most production environments or operational environments, EHS is seen more as a regulatory requirement versus a business management objective. Mm -hmm. And you know, to those of us who have to manage it. Uh, uh, who have to get a seat at the table to be effective. Uh, we've got to be collaborative enough uh, and we've got to make sure that, you know, we're, in, we're making safety a part of the daily priorities of the business, so to speak. Uh, and, and so as such, collaboration and communication allows me to be more of a partner than a participant in the process. So that actually poses an interesting uh, question I have for you with your few comments that you just made regarding a process versus a, a program. Um, you use the word collaboration a lot, which I find a wonderful word to use because it seems more just as it is collaborating where you've got more insights, more input from all different levels where it's not just here's a requirement that you have to abide by it, where it seems, right. seems almost like lecture hall or one-sided collaboration mm -hmm. being getting all involved. I would like to ask, does that mean getting info from workers and employees all the way down to upper management to up to you, where you keep everybody in the loop. So the process does take off in a more effective manner versus again, having just like a program at slash or just a requirement. I feel like the, the personitude of this is what really comes into yeah. play. Yes, and, and yeah, that's a that's a good description. Uh, I like to think about it uh, of using a top-down approach at, at the same time using a bottom-up approach. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the bottom-up approach is having the employees involved. It, it really goes, uh, my experience, Cheryl, it really goes to having people understand the logic behind what you're asking them to do. You know, mm -hmm. what's in it for me or why are you asking me to do this? If If you just, dictate or lecture to people, 
they'll do what you request them to do as long as you're looking at them and monitoring yes. them. However, if you educate them to why it's important and develop an expectation that they're going to carry that out because it's to their benefit and to the benefit of their, their longevity and the company, et cetera, mm -hmm. then accountability becomes much more easy to manage because they understand the why. They understand what's in it yes. for them. And when people understand the why they're doing it and what's in it for them, they're much more eager. Uh, they buy in much quicker. They will actually take ownership of the process. And uh, yes. so that's the kind of the bottom up approach. And then you have to do the same thing from the top down, because at the top, the executives are looking at profit and loss. And mm -hmm. uh, because EHS is not a product that we're putting into a bag or we're putting into a box or we're shipping, although there should be some EHS in every truck that leaves the factory, sure. uh, it's 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 a um, it's a peripheral discipline, and you've got to have vice presidents of operation, you've got to have directors of operation, plant managers, et cetera, understand the same thing. What's in it for me? Or yes. why are we doing this? Over and above, OSHA says we have to. So mm -hmm. the cop approach won't get it, but the partner approach will get it. And what I've discovered in my years of management is when you can communicate uh, with executives the why and the what's in it from them in business terms, speaking particularly to cost benefit analysis, uh, profit and loss impact, return on investment, they're much more uh, open to receiving what you got to say. And they're far more open to giving you a seat at the table because what you're talking about is a business impact versus a, uh, a peripheral aspect of business. Right. So at Dorn, I know a lot of our sites, when we go on, we've had some discrepancy where it's, oh, the employees are being policed to some degree, where it's kind of like, you know, your parents are walking by and all of right. a sudden you sit up straight, and you start doing things properly, but having it more Again, as you said, the accountability of the communication and the why, and it's a benefit for everybody to be successful in what they're doing. I feel like the autonomy of being able to take pride in doing your job better as the whole, for the whole is where everybody yes. wins at the end of the day. So, yes. so that's I, I agree with that philosophy 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I as well. And, and that's particularly uh, true among the millennial workforce group. I mean, there's a there's a why question to everything they do, and our yes. workforce is evolving to that uh, to that you know shifting to that paradigm. So, yeah, it's very very true that when people buy well, into what you do. The last few years, going, I mean, exactly, exactly. So, how have you seen that change, especially since coming out of you know COVID? Uh, have you noticed any significant changes or trends in the field of EHS that stand out to you, or any uh, evolving to adapt to new challenges or to impact mental health or more future infect things that we don't know? Because I think that oh, safety oh, yeah. used to be this very small thing, and now it's becoming more and more spokes right. in the wheel as the world continues on. Yeah, yeah, I think I think uh, EHS has. Uh, the EHS spokes have multiplied in the wheel because we're really dealing with the people aspect of business when you speak to EHS. And mm -hmm. uh, the pandemic drove us into the realization that how people think about the business and the place where their work impacts what their productivity is, impacts how they feel about the company, impacts their desire to come to work or not come to work. And so, uh, you know, mental health is on the radar now. Yeah. Uh, diversity, equity, inclusion is on the radar now. 
technology because of uh, the, the, the changing workforce is on the radar now. So yeah, I'm seeing uh, companies uh, that, that maybe in the traditional uh, pre-union or early union days that would think see a, a person as a commodity or as an asset no different than a machine now sees people as different types of assets, more as resources. And, and the companies are trying to understand what makes our people tick? What do our people like? What, what engages them? What causes them to think like owners, so to speak, as mm-hmm. opposed to just come in, do their eight and eight hours and get out of here? Yeah, exactly. Um, we, we see a ton, and especially we were just at a, the National Safety Conference, and just the technology alone is impressive of what, yes. what's out there. Um, has Bolt House Farms embraced any of that as far as this is the new tech, this is the new way that we're moving? Well, it is the trick that, I mean, it's the trend. Uh, CEHS is evolving to where technology is significantly, significantly uh, uh, increasing as far as importance uh, in the work environment to the degree that uh, you see it kind of on the software side. And of course, you guys are uh, specifically familiar from the ergonomic perspective mm-hmm. where you see uh, wearables uh, from the ergonomic perspective becoming a technological advance yeah. and uh, people are really getting into that. But uh, I think uh, the technology is here to stay, and uh, now we're starting to see uh, technology being introduced in EHS through artificial intelligence-related mm-hmm. uh, activities, particularly uh, you know real-time location tracking and uh, surveillance and monitoring of certain uh, 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 work areas and aspects. So, yeah, I, I think. Uh, technology is here to stay, and we need to uh, adopt and adapt it. And even with data management, you know, data data tracking, incident, accident investigation, regulatory compliance, et cetera. Now there are apps out there that you can put on your phone, and if you want to know what the regulation is for fall protection, you just click the app and type in fall protection, and boom, the regulation's right there with some recommendations of how to comply. So, yeah, technology is a big part of the business. It has evolved to become a big part of the business in in recent years, and I think it's only going to increase. Well, everything being at the speed of your fingertips these days, it's that crosses, I think, all kinds of different industries, and yeah, EHS is certainly no different. So, yeah, absolutely. So since we're talking ergonomics, I'm going to slide into uh, ergonomics and OSHA. And there's been some okay. recent updates to OSHA regulations. Uh, ergonomics uh-huh. has become an increasingly important aspect of EHNS. In mm-hmm. Minnesota, for example, there's a new state law, it's not OSHA, that requires all organizations in food processing, uh, meatpacking, and some other industries to have a defined ergonomic program where there are a high number of injuries or there may not be. Uh, my understanding is that Cal OSHA requires every employer uh, to subject to California's ergonomic standards uh, to establish and implement a program to minimize these motion, repetitive motion injuries, mm-hmm. uh, any other problems they might have, bring down workers' comp cases. Uh, how does the impact with the business that you're in and the strategy of the other priorities arise, how does that all come together when it comes to budgeting time? Well, I think, uh, and, and you're absolutely right, California requires that if you have, there's the uh, uh, CCR 5110, I think it is, there's the uh, California Code of Regulation relative to ergonomics that says if you have one or more employees that suffers a repetitive motion injury within a year, don't quote uh-huh. me on that, but we can read the regulation <laughs> if we want to, but there's a standard that says this is the trigger point. Uh, 
where you have to then go and implement a, a repetitive motion reduction program. And so Correct. from that perspective, I think the impact on employers, or I think uh, the proactive employees are understanding that uh, we should be proactive in our workplace assessments. Uh, that's kind of how I got with you guys and, and what you guys have done for us in one of my uh, facilities is uh, right. let's, ta let's take a look. Let's see what, what is our ergonomic exposure because it's not like there's a tag hanging on ergonomic exposures throughout the factory. You have to have somebody who understands the discipline uh, to come in and take a look. And even sometimes I think a mistake that we make is we have laymen try to identify ergonomic related issues, but I think the sciences advance far beyond uh, just lifting, pushing, pulling, stretching or not stretching. And uh, so so at least, you know, from our assessment, we learn things not only relative to ergonomics, but we learn things relative to other parts of our business. But but I think you got to be proactive in doing the evaluation if you're smart, because in Minnesota, as you called out in California, as I called out, uh, there's a requirement once you have a triggering event or, or you reach an action limit. And with that being the case, you don't want to get caught mid budget without yeah, exactly. budget. And so I would be proactive in doing the assessment. I would also be proactive for the potential that might arise, which I'll make sure that I do in 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 years you know ahead. Uh, I think knowing what the ergonomic requirements are for the area, whether they be city, state, federal, whatever it happens to be, mm -hmm. it only makes sense to budget for the potential in case you have a triggering event, or in case your assessment reveals that you really need to. Uh, uh, you you really need to ramp up your efforts in ergonomics. Which makes sense because when it comes to budgeting, economic impacts are just those things that you need to have kept in mind. So if you have a significant uh, economic impact on a business, companies can see, it's actually what, three to six times on their ROI and yes. business growth yeah. when investing in EHS. So that's right. What can you share as far as insights or experience related to the economic benefits of a strong EH program, EHS program? So basically, What's the current ROI on business investments in EHS, and how does that impact uh, your business sustainability? Well, I'm I'm seeing, you know, not only from uh, so I'm, I'm the vice president at one company, and I own the consulting company, so I get to see a lot of various impacts, and uh, depending on the assertiveness at which EHS is being addressed within a company, you see an increase in. Uh, what I call cost-benefit analysis or return on investment. For example, uh -huh. uh, one company that I worked with uh, uh, recently, in fact, and we, I started doing some safety coaching with them, they uh, derived a tremendous economic benefit, and I'm not suggesting uh, other companies do this. I think you got to evaluate your business and determine what's right. But when I started working with them, uh, they made the decision uh, as part of the, uh, the attrition in their company, their safety director left. And instead of replacing the safety director, they uh, increased the responsibility of a safety technician, uh, promoted that person to safety supervisor and hired me as a coach for that person. And in the six months since they've done that, uh, their incident rates are down 30 to 35 percent. Uh, their severity is down 25 to 30 percent. Uh, the I had a stewardship meeting with them uh, a month ago. 
and the operations personnel are just as happy as they can be. The employees participated in the stewardship. They were extremely happy. The engagement is increased and they feel a part of it. So, you know, this kind of traditional safety that says, I'm going to tell you what to do and you do it. That's the dictatorial style. And then there's the evolved safety. That's really my approach is the behavioral approach where one of the first things we did is went out and asked the employees, what, how do you feel about safety? Do you feel safe? What are your concerns? We captured all of that. We responded to it. We put in safety suggestion box. We put their questions and their responses up on the uh, television boards throughout the operations mm -hmm. so that they could see here was my concern and here's what the company did about it. And now safety is one of the things that uh, gets the most traction there. And they've reduced their incident rates 30, 35 percent. They reduced their uh, severity 25 to 30 percent in the first six months of us implementing this process. So I'm not suggesting that anybody get rid of their safety director. Uh, I'm <laughs> suggesting that the right uh, the, the right inputs will produce the right outputs. Uh, you could talk to the executives in a company all day long, but they're not exposed to machinery or forklifts on the floor or cold or heat or, uh, you know, they, they may walk through the floor, but they're not out there doing it. Talk to the professional athletes. Talk to the employees on the floor. Ask them what the challenges are. Ask them what makes them uncomfortable. And using that approach, this is the, you know, kind of took off there because I'm excited about that. But that is uh, that's an example of the economic impact of implementing a quality EHS program. So along the same line, since you do, you've got a background in consulting, you pretty much just answered this question, but I just want to throw it back out there. Um, so consulting firms staying relevant as far as the ever-changing regulatory environment, would you agree that it's the same kind of thing? You want to stay away from the program component and go more of the process where you kind of get into the field, get everyone's opinions, because that to me, just you're you're covering all your bases. Yeah, hundred percent. I would agree, Cheryl. And you know, I think I think consulting opportunities are going to increase versus decrease uh, as the competitive environment of business continues to increase. Uh, companies are looking for ways to achieve more in the EH and ask risk management realm uh, with less expense and with less resources and with less overhead. And yep. uh, I know from my own experience, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an EHS risk management coach for a number of companies, and I don't have an office on their ground. I, I speak with the appropriate people frequently. Uh, I visit frequently. I understand the business and what's going on in the business incrementally. I understand their pain points and I help them develop solutions to that. But I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not on their payroll as a as a full time equivalent. Uh, mm -hmm. which means, you know, whatever the percentage increase is for benefits and all of that uh, is a cost savings to them. So I think consultants that that really understand how to get in and understand the business, consultants that really understand how to get in and understand the organization's culture and behavior, and then consultants that uh, can delineate very rapidly the pain points are going to be in, in high demand. Uh, going forward. So with culture uh, and behavior going forward, I'm going to lean into philosophy and advice. Sure. So you have a plan, you have your plan, check, act philosophy, and it's mm -hmm. really well established uh, approach in EHS. Can you mm -hmm. chat a little bit more about this philosophy and its importance? Yeah. So, with Bolt House so or anybody else? Yeah, absolutely. 
I'd love to take credit for uh, it, 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 that being uh, my ideology, but quite honestly, that's the ANSI Z10 uh, safety management model, uh, plan, do, check, and act. And and I have um, I have evolved the principles over time into okay. nine concepts that I use. But but I could replace plan, do, check, and act with evaluate, implement, measure, and adjust. Because that's okay. the principle. It just says go in, do an assessment, do an evaluation. Now you got to be you got to be proficient at doing the evaluation, which means you have to have the technical skill and competency. Sure. But you go in and you do the evaluation, and once you've done the evaluation, you implement in response to the evaluation. So I found this and I did that to offset that. All right. Now I found this. I did this to offset it. Let me measure what the impact is. And mm -hmm. once you've you've you found it, you've implemented a control. You're measuring the impact. Then you're gonna you're gonna take further action. If that action maybe go back now and look at it again and see if there are other improvements you can make. Or that uh, the measurement phase may say you achieved a 30% reduction in frequency and 20% reduction in severity, but your target was a 40% reduction in frequency and a 30% reduction in severity, then go back through the PDCA or go back through the evaluation implementation measure and make an adjustment. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the PDCA has is, is, is been around for a long time. It's the US-based uh, uh, standard of practice, best practice. Uh, and, and it was from the PDCA that, uh, you know, the European standards started to, uh, okay. to uh, evolve, uh, you know, the, the OSASH uh, 18,001, I think you're up to 45,001 now. Uh, but those European standards actually took their lead from the American standards. And then the Europeans took off and said, well, let's refine this more because they wanted to benefit from the, you know, on the profit side by reducing right. costs that don't have to occur. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I believe in process models. Uh, we have our own process model. I also think as we back up the consulting side, you're not going to get much business just saying, I'd like to help you. You're going to have to go in and tell companies, here's how I can help you. Here's the mm -hmm. process model I use. Here's how you measure it. This is the mm -hmm. frequency that we'll be sitting down and I'm either hitting the goals or I'm not hitting the goals. Right. And, and and then you're going to get, uh, you know, the decision making's attention because everybody's got a better mousetrap, right? Oh, of course. Well, it sounds like you're leaning into it as a more of a proactive approach to handle things before they become an issue versus a reactive one. Because yes. I feel like you're already kind of behind the game if you're reacting versus that. That is 100 percent accurate. That's right. Somebody's already suffered pain. The company's already suffered loss. There's already cost on the books, et cetera, uh, if you're re reacting. And that's why, uh, you know, kind of the traditional safety approach of old was to react to what happened. But the right. more behavioral, uh, cultural based approach is to identify what could happen and react to prevent it from happening or be pro proact to prevent it from happening. Okay, so let me ask you this. Can you speak to a little bit about what your approach to the 30, 60, 90 days review and the POET programs for new hires and finding new talent? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, because I have to pay people, they have to be productive in order for me to pay them. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that I do is I set up, you know, uh, depending on what position the person's coming onto my team to do, 
I set up a, a quality orientation because uh, I my the way I believe the best way I believe to onboard is uh, it's it's called EEA. It's my own little model that I made up. Uh, okay. E stands E stands for educate. E okay. stands for expectations, and A stands for accountability. So when I bring people okay. into the company, whether it's my company or whether it's the company where I'm the vice president, I use first thing I want to do is educate them to the process. This is the process we use. Uh, these are the metrics. This is how it's implemented. This is how often it's measured. And, and you know, is this something you're interested in? That starts in the interviewing process uh, because I want them to understand you're not coming to a green field to take whatever you learned in your last year of college and press that out. We're advanced uh, typically beyond that. And so I don't want you to lose anything you learned in college. I want you to bring what you learned in college and fit it within this process that's a proven process that has worked for years. So let me educate them. Here's how we do it. And then be very clear with the expectation. Here's your portion of the pie. This is what mm -hmm. I want you to own. And I speak to them frequently about thinking like an owner. If, if your department is department A, and it has three buildings and 60 people, everything related to Department A and the three buildings and 60 people or your responsibility from an EHS perspective. And my expectation is that you're going to know more about those three buildings and 60 people than anybody on this property. You're the professional and there. You're the you're the professional. You're the subject matter mm -hmm. expert. You're the you're the person that knows more about EHS than anybody over there. And then the third one is just uh, check-ins. So from the mm -hmm. PDCA, the check portion is sit down and check and see if the person's meeting the expectation. And so I do that uh, uh, when I hire a person. Uh, I have a 30-day check-in. Uh, when I hire a person, I have a quality orientation set up for them. I have right. quality expectations set up for them, and I and I delineate on the front end. These are the accountability points, so these are the metrics that I'm using to evaluate your impact in the first 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And what I discovered in the first 30 days is so I could tell if that person's embracing the challenge in front of them, or if that person's kind of just wanting a, a paycheck, or mm -hmm. if that person's actually cut out for the culture that we have. And within 60 days, I can really tell because I will have given them projects and and I would have given them opportunities to manage within the process. And uh, my goal being before we get to the 90 days, I need to make a solid conclusion as to whether or not the likelihood of this person being successful is greater or lesser. And if the likelihood of them being successful is greater, we found ourselves a good new employee. If the likelihood of them not being successful or if the likelihood is lesser, then I'm going to be fair to them and say, really enjoy meeting you. Hope you learn some things in this 90 days. But I don't really feel like, uh, you know, uh, all the all the uh, all the elements are lining up for us to go forward. So that's actually really great advice, I would say, for anybody, whether they're Bolt House Farms or someplace else. If your management isn't doing some sort of periodic check-in, I would say as an employee, request to have those check-ins so that you're at least making sure you're where you're supposed to be. Your expectations Absolutely. are, yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful, actually, that's something my father would say to me yeah. with wow. any job that I had, so. Yeah. Well, I actually do that myself, and I've been consulting. I've owned a consulting company since 2009, Cheryl. And mm -hmm. with every one of my customers uh, upon engagement, I insist that we put marks out there for check-ins because I want to know how I'm doing. 
I don't want to work for you for a year and to have you tell me in the 11th month, I really don't like anything you've done. I'm not satisfied and have a nice life. I'd like for you to tell yeah. me that within the first 60, 90 days. And so, yeah, I put checkpoints out there for myself. Even when I take a position, I mean, even with my boss now, uh, I request, I schedule one-on-ones uh, mm -hmm. for, for a couple of reasons. I want to make sure, boss, I'm keeping you up to speed on what's going on in our area of responsibility. But at the same yeah. time, I need some feedback on how I'm doing. 100%. So with that being said, what advice do you have for whether it's uh, professionals or management just starting out in the world of EHS or whether it's consulting, um, what kind of advice would you give to those people who are getting their feet wet in this industry? Uh, if you're on the owner operator side or the employee side, I would say I would adopt a principle that I learned from my dad. And that principle would be hire slow and fire fast. Uh, hire slow means evaluate your mm -hmm. own operation. And if you cannot articulate what it is you're looking for, you're being unfair to any applicant that you're talking to. So so, so take the time to be able to articulate what your needs are so that any applicants you're talking to is going to be well aware of what you're looking for. And then right. take the time to evaluate that applicant to determine if they have the skill set, the acumen, and, and the want to, to do what you're looking for. And that takes time. You can't you can't do that quickly or you can, but you're not going to get the ideal results as if you would take the time to do it. So so, you know, hire slow, go through the process, lay it all out, make sure you're having quality conversations, make sure you've delineated. And then if it's not going to work, that's why I use the 30, 60, 90. You, you, you're being unfair. I mean, to be unclear is to be unkind, in my opinion. And so if you're not clear on the expectations, you're being unkind to the person who's supposed to be meeting the expectations. And so when you say hire slow and fire fast, some people roll their eyes and say, man, I don't want anything to do with that guy. No, I'm not talking about <laughs> on a insensitive basis. I'm talking about on an evaluative basis. Take your time to evaluate the job and what's required. Take your time to evaluate the person and what their capabilities are. Take your time in hiring the person to make sure you're closer uh, you've got a closer match and you're going to have a good long uh, experience together versus just hiring a warm body. You don't they don't know what you want them to do. You don't know what they're capable of doing. And before you know it, you're going to end up uh, at odds. So uh, and then if you find that it's a mismatch, then be kind, because to be unclear is to be unkind. If it's a mismatch, sit down, have the conversation, say, I'm sorry, this doesn't look like this is working out. And, and you should be able to clearly uh, delineate and articulate what's not working out. And if you do that, then you set the person up for success in their next opportunity. If you don't do that, you can leave a, an angry and upset individual. You know what? That is solid advice for, at the very least, wonderful longevity to have people in your company for the long haul. So, Oh, yes. I, I started my company in 2009. Yeah, I started my company in 2009, and uh, I've only had uh, one person that's not working with me since 2009. Oh, wow. But it's, yeah, it's, so it's, uh, you know, it's, it has to do with uh, being clear on what the expectations are. And that, and that person, I'm, I'm so proud of that person. That person actually started their own consulting company and uh, in a different nice. business. So they're not a competitor, but they're doing very well. Wonderful. Well, see, the good knowledge goes all over the place. So that's, yeah. that's great to hear. Yeah, absolutely.
Well, Mr. Daniels, I do want to thank you so very much for taking time out of your crazy busy schedule to join us today. And once again, I had the pleasure of interviewing Vice President of EHNS at Bolt House Farms, Mr. Charles Daniels. So thank Certainly you so much. Absolutely. And I appreciate you being a part of Dorn's Injury Prevention Academy. And I'm thank sure you. we'll get you back in soon. I'd love to hear where you guys are at in like say another year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. It's my uh, privilege. And uh, I've enjoyed the conversation, certainly enjoy working with Dorn, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll be available to talk more. All right. Sounds good.